Hey everybody, this is Jason, and I just wanted to say a quick hello before we start the podcast. This is a very cool episode for me. Sid Davis is our guest today, and he is the first real professional comic that I ever opened for. A producer named Mike Ellis put me on the show, and he's put me on a bunch of shows since then, and I have to say, I will always, always look back on Mike Ellis as having given me my start in comedy. So a shout out to you, Mike. Thank you very much for taking a chance on me and giving me a chance to perform. And thank you, Sid, for taking time to sit down and talk to me for a few hours before our second set of shows together, which was uh, just last weekend. And normally we don't get the podcasts up this quickly, but I had such a good time with you. And out of respect for your expertise and your time, I just really wanted to get you uh, launched as quickly as I could. So in a pretty unprecedented fashion, we've got my interview with Sid Davis launching one week after I actually recorded it. And it's just a special one for me. Uh, Sid and I started performing at similar times in our lives relative to our own age. He's about 10 years older than I am, but he started in his mid-40s. I started in my mid-40s, which I'm still in. <laughs> and it's cool. He's making a living doing comedy, and he's a little bit my idol and my role model because I can relate to him so much. So it's a lot of fun. It's a fun episode. I think you'll enjoy getting to know him. And I just want to say on a slightly more serious note that this has been a very tough week for our country and for me and my friends. Uh, we are about a week past the demonstrations and the violence that happened in Charlottesville. And it's just kind of an unfathomable time to me and to a lot of other people. And, and there's a piece of me that feels really grateful to be performing comedy because I feel like we really need comedy right now. And then there's another piece of me that feels like it's super indulgent to be performing comedy and for people to go and watch comedy and listen to comedy because there's just so much awful stuff going on in the world that really needs our attention. But comedy is an opportunity to talk about the hard stuff in an easier to hear and absorb fashion. And I have to say, I have not developed my craft to the degree that I hope I ultimately do. And in a way where I can be sort of deep and meaningful and life-changing and also funny at the same time. So right now I'm focused on funny. And as time goes on, I hope that I'm able to also cultivate a more meaningful act. Because when I see these comedians who really address the big issues in life but do it through comedy and make it funny and make it poignant and make it memorable, those are the men and women that I look up to the most. I think you're going to like the podcast. I think you'd love to see Sid Davis perform live, and he travels all the time, so he will probably come to your town at some point. Definitely look him up. There's a little clip of him at the very end, so listen all the way to the end so you can enjoy that. And I just want to thank you guys for listening, and thank you for telling your friends. Let's get on with the episode. Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. I meet a lot of complicated people. My guest today is Sid Davis. Sid is a comedian who, like me, launched his career in his mid-40s. But he's risen quickly, and I have a lot of admiration for Sid. It needs to be said that he's not really all that complicated. 
Sid is a seemingly stable guy, but he manages to make everyday life funny. Really funny. This is the moment where I thank you for listening and encourage you to make a donation on our donation page. It's also where I mention our Amazon portal, a link you can use to help support the podcast financially without spending any of your own money. But I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to bore you with how helpful it is to rate us on iTunes or why nothing is more important for a podcast than positive iTunes reviews. I'm not even going to ask you to keep telling your friends about learning to fail because we want this all to be a secret. All I'm going to say is learning to fail is a lot of fun for me and I'm going to keep talking whether you're listening or not. And now it's time for my conversation with Sid Davis. Not only did I thoroughly enjoy talking to him, but I got the opportunity to convey how much his career and path have meant to me personally. Sid is the first major comic I ever opened for, so I was really excited to get him on the podcast. Even though he's been mostly successful, I think you're really going to enjoy Learning to Fail with Sid Davis. What have you been doing for the last year and a half since you and I worked together in Hendersonville? Uh, I picked up a lot of my uh, cruise ship work. Um, I, I struggled when I first got on the cruise ships, I, I struggled to, to say, get it, you know, it's, um, you, there's a lot of hard hitting comics out there. It used to be the cruise ship comic was a uh, comic that you just, that's where careers sailed off to die. Right. And then the club situation got a little more competitive or I don't know what, how to describe it, but, uh, a couple of the cruise ship lines said, we want to kick our comedy up so they started paying more they started attracting better acts and um it takes a specific act to to work out there uh for one thing we're used to going out to an audience you know you do 30 minute shows generally on the one of the ships i do um carnival um and you, you normally you follow uh in a, on a land gig, you'll follow somebody that, that get, warms up for you. You got a guy that you got right. an audience that's got the gears turning, and you, you get spoiled at that. To where on a cruise ship, you go out and you, to these people. First of all, they don't pay to get in; it's part of the cruise, right? And there's a there's a whole uh, um, frame of mind of an audience that doesn't pay to get in, right? They can be a bad audience because it's kind of I call it the arms crossed. Thing. And Mitch Hedberg had a joke about somebody handing out something on the street, like, here, you throw this away. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, they, they, they've already taken down their expectations a notch because it's free. Right. And uh, then you have to, to meet that. So you go out there with no warm-up and you get introduced. So you have to approach it uh, different. You have to connect right away. To where um, I learned right away, like I, I do three different R-rated sets, I, and I do a family show, which I repeat. But uh, you go do your first show is that's your best show. That is the absolute killer show, and then you've connected with all these people on the ship. It's like a big community, and then they come back to see you, and you've got most of the hard work done. Right, you've connected, and they're there to see you. So. So the you second, do your second rate and then your third rate material. Third, well, <laughs> they're they're loyal to watch you go down flames as the as the cruise <laughs> continues. 
In, well, it's not that the second, third rate. It's, it's I know. I'm just well. It, it it it's the this is the bulletproof can't miss. Right. This is right, what right, I get right. them with. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's you know there's some highlights in the other sets that are are really hysterical. But yeah. I want to make sure they're walking out saying let's talking with each other at dinner about this guy. I, you got to go see this guy, and then fill in the room and uh, already anticipating you know a good show where that's that's what i had to do and i and they didn't get that at first i mean and I, nobody tells you that then like no no comedians give you that i mean that, thankfully you just gave me the download on that but yeah, yeah nobody but, nobody said that to you going um in? it's it's nice to go out there with somebody who's a good mentor that will show you around and yeah. I, I don't think i was out there with someone that was necessarily trying to sabotage me but uh i Couple cruises in, I was hanging on by a thread. And oh, really? I, I took a cruise with um, one or two comics that were uh, mentors, you know, and they just said, "Here's." They weren't. They were so well established in Carnival that they weren't threatened by their right. jobs. Right, right, right. So they, they're like, "I'll oh, help help a guy out." You know, yeah. I'd known him for years, and then it started to improve, and uh, I, I work for him all the time now. That's so cool, man. Because yeah. I remember. When we were in Hendersonville, I was filming my set and, you know, obviously offered to film yours, no problem. And you're like, well, I'm going to try and do a clean set because I want to get on Carnival. And the first word out of your mouth was shit. And you're like, well, that, <laughs> there goes that. I already but, can't send this in. <laughs> that's one of the things where you, like, we'll go, come into a theater like we're doing tonight and, and they'll say the age group. And that's been kind of, you know, well, these people are uh, 50, 60, 70 years old, for instance, you know. But... You know, um, Mick Jagger's 75 years old. All the sex, drugs, and rock and roll people have been there, done that, and the, you, there's not much you can do to shock them, you know. Right. But you can come out and be... It's not that the lewd material or the, all the, the F-bombs and everything scares them. It's just they're just done with it. They're, they're past that, you know. They, they need something else to make them laugh. And, so does that mean you have to go further over the line, or you have to... No, no, it's, you kind of got to have to be more creative and, and, yeah. you know, if you're going to make sex jokes, they have to be subtle. They have to right. take the red skeleton approach, you know? Yeah. But I do plenty of that that's, humor. That's so funny. I just like, I mean, my whole opening bit tonight is about Tinder and you just told me everyone's like 75 years old. Maybe no one's going to get it. Like it could totally, f I well, could then, die <laughs> in my first minute. I mean, I don't have to open with it, but I was kind of planning to. But I wonder now that now that I'm thinking about it, these guys might not. Uh... Well, you got to explain it to them. Though. Yeah, it's just like if any of you tried this, here's what it is, and here's what it does, and here's why I. Uh, it's if it's like me, it's like here's why I don't get it. You know, yeah, where I try to find the humor. But Do you know what Tinder is? My daughter does, and she's been on it all the time. And, oh, okay. And I say I I I don't know how the, the online thing is. I'm, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that because. I'm of the opinion, like, if, if I go online and anybody who's interested in me is, like Groucho Marx said, like, I, I don't want to belong to a club that would consider me as a member. Right, like, absolutely. Like, yeah, right. What, what do you see in me? I, I don't, know. I don't trust you because you like me. I did know? that today. I had, I had, uh, so I'm on a couple different sites. They're all the same, you know, one of them's called Bumble. And I, you know, I swipe right, which means you like someone, you know, on way more people than I should, you know. But I mean, it's right. like... I mean, you just don't know. I mean, you don't know if you're even showing up in their search, whatever. So, so today I swiped on someone, and then she swiped 
back on me. It's like, oh, you have a new match on Bumble. I was like, well, that's suspicious. <laughs> and I went and looked, and I looked at her pictures a little more closely, and I read what she said. I was like, I don't think this is someone I want to be with. And I unmatched us before she had a chance to write yeah. to me. You know, she probably cried herself to sleep. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> she's just devastated. The thing about being a woman online is that you just get inundated. You know, it's, it's, uh, I describe it as like the reproductive process, you know, and the women are the egg and the men are the sperm. And when the woman launches her profile online, it's like millions of sperm just come flying at her with everything they've got. And suddenly she just gets defensive. Right. You know, and I would too. I, I don't blame them. Oh, yeah. No, their profiles are like, don't swipe at me if you're this or don't, if you're that. You know, they're, they're giving you 10 reasons not to, not to swipe right on them. Right. As opposed to trying to, lure you in in any way. And anyone who is trying to lure you in is probably not someone you're going to want. And so it's brutal, man. It's, uh, it's brutal. But anyway, that's funny. Like I hadn't even thought about that. Well, whatever. I'll, 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 by the time I get up there, two other comics will have, will have, uh, warmed up. This was back in the days of dial up where just out of curiosity, I'm married, you know, but so I want, I I was curious. I want to see what this, uh, What's the big one? The E Harmony. Right? E Harmony, yeah, that's yeah. one of the big ones. Yeah, name is E Harmony or Match, but it was over a couple of beers. But I get on the computer and I just put everything I wanted in a, a woman, you know, and it comes back like, well, there's no matches. <laughs> <for you."> <laughs> <laughs> I figure, you know, maybe I better just stay put with the. The, the woman that I have that, bamboozled yeah. for 35 years. <laughs> I mean, you're happily married, right? Yeah. Or married yeah. anyway. I say if you're not miserable, you're happy. Yeah. yeah well, I've seen the miserable, you know? Yeah. My wife doesn't make me miserable, therefore yeah. I equate that to happy. That's, that's close enough to have. <laughs> yeah. I don't wake up in the morning angry, and I go to bed angry, so that sounds I amazing. call that happy. That's, what's your secret? Is just staying out of my own way. Staying yeah. out of, we stay out of each other's way. I mean, you you travel a lot as a comedian, right? So that yeah, probably yeah, helps. Yeah, I'm gone a lot. And what did you do before comedy? Uh, well, g- going way back, I mean, r- right out of college, I got into radio. And I wanted to oh, get on I the air. I wanted to be a voice and all that. And I thought getting my foot in the door, I'd be a writer. I'd sell advertising and make commercials. But I, n- I was never allowed on the air. Really? You got a great voice. I mean, I would think. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I was not as confident back then as I am now, I guess, with my voice. But... Um, I just hated selling. I absolutely hate selling something that I don't have any control over. Right. Whether and so I was selling this advertising and I, and I didn't like it. And I and I don't take rejection well. No, you know, some people don't care, but I, yeah, I don't think anyone yeah takes rejection real well. But uh, some people just don't care. I've I've just just seen some people, salespeople that are you know just drive right through, and I'm like, I would have quit a long time ago. Yeah. And well, I, you did. I, I did. I did. I just <laughs> kind of got fired, um, or let go. It was a good let go. They let, they gave me two weeks, you know, and said, mm. and then I worked for a waterbed place. Remember waterbeds? I do remember waterbeds. Yeah, they yeah. were the thing, you know. They In boy, the they came and went yeah. within a five year period. So I was an advertising manager for a waterbed company, and I came home on a, or back to from lunch on a Friday afternoon. My stuff was in a box on the desk and. how big of a hint do you need (laughs) while you were gone we took the liberty of packing up your stuff for you yeah and and i went home to told my wife and she goes well you know i've been uh, having more sickness you know more i'm i think i'm pregnant she was pregnant so i I took the first job i could which was an insurance agent 
And I would have never, never, ever have taken a job as an insurance agent unless I had to. Right. And I, and I had to. That was back in 1982 when the economy was just awful. Right. 83, actually. So I, I, I took that, and then I, again, I'm selling stuff. I'm, you know, I, I, I just did, I refused to do this living in my car thing until my dream comes true. I, I just, I, I had the family. This was my hole. I dug it, and, right. you know, I had to stay with it. So I, one thing led to another. And I was insurance five or six years. And starting, even as much as I hated it, I, I was uh, making money. And, uh, it's good money. I mean, you only have to make the sale once, and you get paid forever. Right. I mean, that's that's the advantage of insurance. But I just I didn't like it. I didn't like the company I work with. Plus, insurance people they might be the most boring people in the world. <laughs> I know. I, I and yeah, and plus, you know, you, you go up to somebody in a grocery store, right? A friend, and you want to talk. All the, you know, all they're thinking about is, well, he's going to ask me right. for my auto, <laughs> home, and life. Sell you know? me insurance. Yeah. It's like anybody that sells multi-level marketing. Uh, right? I know. Once, once, I did that for like a week. Yeah. And then, you know, you had to call your friends and say, I, I don't do it anymore, so let's yeah. have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Great. What are you doing this Friday? Yeah. yeah. I, I used to get calls from people I hadn't known. I mean, I knew, like in college, and I'd get a call 25 years later, like, hey, this is... Joe, you know, yeah, I remember you. He goes, yeah, I got this great opportunity, you know, this, and it's multi-level marketing. As soon as they say opportunity, yeah, got conversations over a business opportunity for you, and <clears throat> however the sales pitch was. But I decided it. I was about thirty years old, and I'd been in insurance about six years, and I, I decided this isn't what I want to do. So, I, and I'd, I'd had a couple insurance clients that were working at Piedmont Airlines and talking about how they flew everywhere. And I said, you know, the idea of flying everywhere, anywhere I want is kind of enchanting to me. And uh, my wife had never flown. I don't think she'd flown on a jet before then. Wow. She'd, how? What year is this? Uh, 1988. Wow. My son was five. Yeah, my daughter was one. Or, yeah, that was about right. So um, I, I started as a baggage handler, and then the first job with the airline is called the lav truck, where they... Uh, they Clean out the bathrooms? They, yeah, they uh, stick a hose up in the airplane, and and you uh, suck the shit out of them. <laughs> it's a, that job literally sucks shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's just awful. That sounds and Piedmont awful. was a, I mean, they were a beloved airline, but they weren't very, very big on the OSHA standard. So, Ugh, oh, they God. just gave you a pair of gloves and, and a mask. They, Did yeah. they give you a mask so you don't have to smell it? Uh, I think there was like one mask uh, to share for five people. You know? <laughs> and that the, as soon as U.S. Air took over, they came in with a different attitude. Everything was fixed. We had everything. We almost had to wear a space suit suit to do that because right. they go oh you know the chemicals you're swimming in like no no right no one mentioned it <laughs> yeah yeah so i did that and then i i got into the maintenance department a little thing called utility where you go up and clean the airplanes which was that was a union job was the best job in the world you work 10 minutes an hour and then the rest i'd go carousing around the terminal uh, really? carousing is not the best word but i just go up and <laughs> Chit chat with everybody in the terminal, and mm. just, I found it fascinating. And then I, I noticed the mechanics were making a lot of money, so I was going to like, 
I'm going to do that. So for two years, I worked first shift, working uh, utility, and then I went to night school, and, and then I got a mechanics license and upgraded to a mechanic in 1992. But the, the utility job was the best job because what you do is plane comes to the gate, say, from Los Angeles. Right. And it parks there, and you watch the people get off. And your job is to go on in 10 minutes and prep the cabin, clean it for the next flight. Right. Well, people that have been sitting there for four or five hours have dozed off. They leave magazines in there. And, oh, yeah. And uh, I used to take all these magazines I'd find. There'd be, you know, all the ladies' magazines and uh, Sports Illustrated and, oh, you name it, I'd have a stack of magazines. And I used to go through the terminal. And, Sell them? No, just give them okay. away. <laughs> give them away. But I, you give them to the people at the Starbucks or at the yeah. Burger King and, and, you know, like you get comped. It was kind of like I had my own little route. Oh, I see. You gave them to the people who worked there. Yeah, yeah. yeah gave I them to my meant, friend, I the pretty girls the, that worked the, at the, the gate. I'd yeah. And then I'd go, the, the Starbucks lady, she always wanted a uh, L, that E-L-L. Or a, yeah, L, yeah. Yeah, or those fashion magazines. Uh -huh. Tons of So, them. you know, my coffee in the morning was... Uh, you know, oh, that's smart, man. Way. Yeah, yeah. That's very smart. Um, so I, I did that. I was an airline mechanic till 2000. Like 2001, 9-11 happened. Then there's all this turmoil in the airline business. And uh, U.S. Air was just one of the many airlines that would go bankrupt. And, um, and by the time 2005 rolled around, it all sh shaken out to where I was given a, a package to retire. Uh, and it included lifetime flying. Perfect. Um, especially yeah. if you, did you know already at that point that you wanted to pursue comedy? I was, I was involved in a group called Toastmasters uh -huh. and, uh, I knew I had a, it was a public speaking group, but I, I had a knack for comedy. I'd won a, um, the state humorous speaking contest and, um, and that, that was 2005 and I got, yeah, I took the comedy class, uh, at the comedy zone. Yeah. The same one you took. Yeah. So the different different instructor who well, Joel's a much better instructor than what I had I oh is he okay so yeah. you don't have to tell me who it was then no I, <laughs> I was about to ask until you said they weren't very good so. well I mean he was good but I mean it was uh Joel's just been in the trenches so long and, he has yeah and and Len's good too Len's has a sense of humor yeah so um went into that and I, and I went through the same process that everybody goes through you uh you you <laughs> You're humbled very quickly, very, very quickly. quickly yeah. um, just you're nervous. That I, I did that comedy class graduation, which is full of people that you, you are very supportive. Right. And Joel says, well, that's pretty good, and do a guest set. And uh, that was different. They, they were people that didn't like me nor wanted to support me. And I, when I just threw my first punchline out there and it just got nothing, I... I didn't know how to handle it. I, I had, it was like grabbed this, this, an aviator grabbing the stick going, mayday, mayday. And, and <laughs> Did you do that? Because that might have been funny. No, no, but that was what was going on. Yeah, in, my in head. your head. Yeah, yeah. that should have come out your mouth. That might have been good. And then, you, oh, once the audience sees that in you, they're like, the sharks that oh, I know. tasted they just blood. Did, and, yeah. And then uh, I think I was supposed to do a five minute set. It ended up being like three. And every comic has that story. I oh, mean, dude. And, and you forget. that That's the, the worst thing is you, for, you forget what you're going to say, either yeah. that or, or what you had 
rehearsed a million times. Yeah. It's all chopped up now. It doesn't make any sense. And so, yeah, it was a disaster. Oh, man. Yeah, I uh, by the time I took the class there, I'd already been doing this a year and a half. So that your story didn't happen for me. But I had plenty of things like that happen leading up to that class. Right. You know, I mean, I had plenty of bombs. And I mean, not... And, and here's the thing is, like, when you're starting out, you don't know you're bombing. Like, a lot of times, the room's nice to you, or they laugh more often than they should, or, you know, and, like, and I'll be like, oh, I feel really good about it, you know? And then I, now I've gone back and listened to the audio from my first couple of months doing this, yeah. and it is painful, man. Yeah. And painful. at that but, time, it wasn't as painful. No, no. At that time, I was like, <laughs> I think I'm really good at this. You know, I have a real knack. And, and I mean, it, the ideas were there. What's neat is, like, I can hear... I mean, it's a lot of the same stuff I'm talking about now. It's the same jokes. The bones are there, but now the flesh is a little nicer to look at. You know, right. it's like, uh, and and the biggest thing was the biggest difference I noticed was I was just rambling through the joke. Like I, now it's dialed in. Like I know what I'm up there to say. I've memorized it. I've told it enough times. I know where the beats are, and you know, I mean, it's always evolving and changing and trying a new line, trying to make it always trying to make it tighter and funnier, but. But it doesn't have that sort of meandering feel that it used to have where I thought it was working in the moment and it just really, really wasn't in right. hindsight, you know, listening to it. Um, but when I did my show there uh, at the Comedy Zone for my graduation, I mean, man, it's it shooting fish in a barrel. Just crushed. Just, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and I didn't know a single person in the room. Right. But, but they no one were in the room. there for somebody else. Yeah. And yeah they like were 100% there for other people, right. most of whom are already gone. Toastmasters groups are like that too. That they're they're they're, they're very supportive. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember Nick Taylor. He was the other kid. Uh, he was the guest. I guess I was the feature, and you were the headliner in Hendersonville. Yeah, vaguely. And, and so, well, any the other kid, with yeah. long brown hair. He was in Toastmasters. He, in fact, he still is. Um, oh, yeah. That's how he got his start. So kind of similar to you, he started in Toastmasters, and then. I don't know if he won or placed or he did really well in like a comedy thing. I think he got disqualified for making a couple of technical errors, but he did One really well. One is if you well go long. It. Yeah, I think he went long by, yeah. by you know, five seconds or something like that, and that right. was enough to disqualify him. But he, uh, anyway, he he's similar. You guys have that in common. Um, so that's interesting that you guys come from Toastmasters because that helps to really like learn those public speaking skills. And Otherwise. I, I, just don't have the time to go to the Toastmasters meetings anymore. But I, if I went back, I'd want to learn um, more about motivational speaking. Hmm. And see, one void is I, if you're a comedian, then being taken seriously is a challenge, you know, to where you, you come out and start talking about uh, colon cancer or something like that. Then your audience is saying, okay, where's the punchline? Right. How's he going to make this funny when right. he didn't really intend to, you know? Right. So that that's part of the the wrath of being a comic is that you go around like everybody expects you to be funny all the time, you know. Where I just turn. I did you watch the history of comedy that, that's on C or uh, yeah on CNN? Showtime? Oh no, history of comedy? No. Yeah, yeah. They play it Sunday nights, and it's they have all these A listers, you know, and, and then you know, of course, half like uh, Robin Williams and. Richard Pryor and a lot of the other comics, they were saying, yeah, when they, when they were on that stage, that's the only time they ever wanted to live. The, the rest of the time, they were just miserable people that just hated life. And yeah. Just, you know, 
And I'm like, I don't feel that way at all. I don't feel that way at all either, but yeah. maybe that's why we're maybe not that's, as good as that's them. that's why we're sitting here, but... <laughs> um, I don't, and I, I had a different approach. I, I grew up in the the Johnny Carson Tonight Show talk show kind of thing, where right. you know Johnny Carson's monologue then was he, topical, but it wasn't as you know like Stephen Colbert comes out and he's fifteen minutes of how he hates Donald Trump, you know, right? Which, and they're good jokes and it's good humor, but you know sometimes I don't want. To hear how the world's got to be saved, I just want to laugh at something stupid. Right. You know? Yeah. And uh, that's what I, I came up on. There's plenty of other things to, to talk about. And going back to these cruise ships, you know, it's the um, the makeup of that audience, uh, the geographic or the what do they call that the demographic demographic is um, you have a lot of uh, the uh, white uh, middle class people. And then you have an urban, there's a lot of urban. So you have a lot of diversity on those ships. Mm. So if you go out there and, and try to get political and try to save the world, these people that have saved up for years to go on this vacation uh, and lose half the audience, you've lost all the audience, you know. Right. So you got to go out there and talk about, uh, you got to do good comedy about common denominator things. You know, you're not out there telling knock knock jokes and. Making balloon animals, you know, yeah. you're you yeah. got to have a good comedy set, but it's got to be uh, right down the middle of the rails, you know. So um, that was another, but I never did do save the world point of view. Uh, here's my message, comedy. Anyway, if if it's underlying that it's like I find the world very difficult to live in, let you know, let alone trying to save it. You know? <laughs> so. That's kind of been my whole voice anyways. Has your act changed much in the last year since I've... I mean, am I going to see a bunch of new material, or or is it pretty... Some. I, you know, I, do, I do the mainstays. I You know, I call it play free bird. Right. Uh, there's a lot of other things. And I, I had to write some new material for the ship. And, and, you know, as you go on and keep writing material, you'll, you'll do some of these things where sometimes they were your closer, you know, this bit, or this right. bit was always, you know, your fastball. This is, and you, you'll be in the middle of a set saying, you know, that punchline used to get a lot more. Well, it's probably getting what it always did, but the stuff you're writing now is, has eclipsed it to right. where, uh, you know, you, you, you follow, you follow yourself pretty well. And, but it's not that that material failing. It's just that you're getting better. You you're know? getting better. Yeah. That was when I when when I took the class. They said, "Why are you here?" And every I was the only person with any stage experience as a comedian. There are some people who've done some improv or other things, but mostly not even that. Most people were just like bucket list or one guy's a hypnotist or whatever. You know, I was the only person who had done comedy and was there to really like crank it up a notch. And they said, "Why are you here?" And I said, and I remembered back to our show. You know, I call it our show. Yeah, our <laughs> your show. show. Well, sure, it's our your show. show that I was on. Um, and uh, and I remember, like, because I had a bunch of friends there, and and it was the first time I'd played to that big of an audience. And you know, I did pretty well the first night, and thought you did great. really well the second night. Yeah. You know, well, thank you, I appreciate that. However, uh, when you got out there, the volume in the room, just sheer volume, like decibels, was so much higher and so <laughs> much louder and so much longer. And I was like. Oh shit, like that's the difference between featuring and headlining. Like Sid is keeping these people at 11 the whole time. Like they were just 
laughing hysterically. You never gave him a moment not to be laughing. And, and, and I was, and I really got like, that's the difference between, you know, my level and where he's at. I mean, lots of things between here and there, but but it, it made a huge impression on me. And so, and that sounds similar to what you're saying about your own stuff. Like now your own jokes aren't riding that higher decibel that you've now acclimated to, you know? Um, so I think that's interesting. You know, I think, I think, and that's cool. And that's why stuff cycles out or you find a way to refresh it and maybe you're tired of telling it after all that time. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's, 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 that's not as alive. Well, when like out on the ships, all of a sudden I needed, uh, two hours worth of material. I needed 30 minutes of clean and then I needed three half hours of bar. Right. To where a lot of the R was uh, was written as clean, you just add. Yeah, going the other way is that's easy. Yeah, you yeah, just yeah. throw shit and bullshit and the, yeah. you know, all the bad words in there. And, and I tell them in the family show, I go, I'm going to do a couple bits here. I'm going to do the adult show. I'm just going to add bad words just to make them happy. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I have to bring back a lot of stuff, you know, to fill that time. And uh, I'll look at a joke and I'll write like, well, here, I, I've just, you learn how to polish stuff up and find a home for this stuff I, I had written down for the open mics. And, right. You know, you just, you, you become a wordsmith over time. You've gone out so many times, you know yourself better, you know how, which words work better. And a lot of times when I started doing better, you know, getting more laughs, I had to be patient and let the laughter die down, which is why I never thought I'd, that'd be a problem, but then it did, is worrying what to do with your face, you know, like your face still has to ride the wave and your <laughs> face still has to uh, give you the reflection of what the joke was, you right. know. So then, you know, and there's a lot of epiphanies you have along the way that, that change things, and, and one of them was uh, supposed to do like a seven-minute set. And this was back when I was between emceeing and featuring. Maybe right. I was featuring here and there. And I did a seven-minute set, and they go, we're quick on time, just do five minutes. So I go, okay, well, i got to whack all this stuff. So I just did just the best of what I had, you know, and then I came back, and the, the guy at the club was pissed off. He goes, you did seven minutes. I'm like, no, I did five. He goes, no. Well, when you, when you just did the good stuff, the laughter lasted long enough that oh, it took right. up the rest of the time. And I'm like, wow. Maybe there is that, you know, there is a thing for the, the balance between quality and quantity. And uh, and then the, the, the probably the biggest epiphany I had, because I was always good writing, always good wordsmith. I knew that. But I, I didn't have... I lack stage presence and uh, the connection and the likability because some people could just walk on stage. And Julie Scoggins, for example, is just, yeah. she's just so damn likable. She's a natural, I know. Yeah. She really is. And you feel like you've known her for 30 years and yeah. all that. Where somebody looks at me and goes, figures I've been in prison 30 years, you know, until <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to get off to a good start. Yeah. Um. And part of that's confidence. Well, I was I, I was rented a car once. I had Sirius XM radio on it, and I was flipping through trying to find comedy, you know. And when I was flipping through the channels, I found uh, through one swipe. There's just like f- 50 religious stations, you know, and I hit. And I happened to hit a religious station, and then I had to focus on the road for what was going on. Right. 
And then I got my mind wandered, and I said, well, I've been listening to this for 10 minutes, subliminally, or, and, and then I switched over, and then there was James Gregory on the clean station, and I switched over, and it's Chris Rock. And it kind of dawned on me that the, the cadence those guys are using in their act was no different than the Southern Baptist preacher I'd been listening to for, right. you know, five or six minutes. It, it was not whether, you know, you have a cell phone? Do you like your cell phone? It's like, I got a cell phone. And you got to preach like every premise is yeah. like, this is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you know, not that you're preaching, but... No, I understand, but your voice is preaching, your, your intonation, yeah. yeah. This is not my opinion, this is the way it is, you know. Yeah, I'd say the hottest comic in Asheville right now, right now she's just going through this, like, amazing, all of her stars are aligning, and, and she just got a movie with Jennifer Aniston, and she's got asked to do this and that, and she's on seven shows in the next four weeks, I mean, doing amazing. Uh, her name's Hillary Begley, and... She was born and brought up Pentecostal just like crazy. They called her Hallelujah Hillary. I mean, the only book she'd ever read was the Bible for the first 20 years of her life. She's like, I was, a, go. I was Pentecostal Christian until I read a second book. <laughs> One of her jokes, you know, and, uh, and, but her stage presence is unmatched. I mean, it's, she is just full of, you know, fire and vinegar, and she's incredible up there. Even doesn't matter what the hell she's talking about. And granted, she's had some crazy stuff happen to her, so her stories are also pretty compelling. But yeah. she can really make anything uh, at least entertaining to watch and listen to. And then when she stumbles on something that's, or I don't want to say stumbles and like demean her process, but when she creates something that's that really has some teeth, then she, I mean, they're all going over the fence. Every one of them, like she's just knocking it out of the park, left, right, and center. And that's because she was. Really brought up in that environment, and yeah. Spanky too. Spanky was wasn't his father a preacher or something? I think like so. Yeah. yeah, and so he just has that. Even though he's super mellow on stage, but he has that sort of cadence and just that ability to kind of know when to hit it and how to. Sam Kennison. He really? Was a, he was a Southern Baptist preacher. For he came from a family of preachers. Oh my goodness, boy! And, and he's the last person I think would. Well, he broke away from it. Obviously, well, clearly, but, yeah, but. But that's what he did a as a too kid. Far. <laughs> he was like a little um, protege. Is that what you call it? Yeah. In the in the uh, the traveling uh, church thing, you know, the tent church thing. They this this they'd pitch a tent at a county fair, and this little Sam was like their little rock star when he was twelve, thirteen years old. He might have been a prodigy. Prodigy. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. did I say? A protege. I mean, protege would be mean. You know, he would be oh, like in this, training. Yeah. But a prodigy is someone who's already got it. Yeah. Young. Yeah. Well, probably both. He probably he was, was both. Yeah. He was the little rock star of the, the tent groups. You know. Oh man. See, yeah, that, that was in his fascinating. Like. But he could, you know, rip it out, and he sold. You know, held the record for selling Bibles because when he pitched something, you know. It wasn't like, please buy this. It's like, was he yelling at people the oh, way yeah, he did on stage? Same, the same as he did. They, I heard tapes of it. It was the same as cadence as what you heard on, on his comedy. Wow. That'd be so cool. It'd be and, great to hear. It'd be great to hear that, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Kid Kinnison. It's, I'm sure on uh, YouTube there's a documentary that has that. All right, I'll look for it. Yeah. I download so much stuff on YouTube that... It's crazy. It's it's yeah. it's amazing what you can watch there. I mean, if you spend all your time just watching Netflix, YouTube, and listening to podcasts, you'd need five thousand lifetimes just to hear everything that's out there today. Right. You know, let alone whatever's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, there's just so much, and it's quality. There's so much good stuff 
out there to listen to and to watch. It's really neat. Well, that's uh, I, I was going through um, YouTube, and then you stumble on something, and then there's another video about, I forget which one. I, one thing led to another was 9-11. And then you run into these things where uh, here's proof where the planes never hit the building. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and then, then you go down and you see, like, wow, all these people actually they believe that. Believe that. Yeah. I mean, it's one after another. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, there's that cat fighting, and that's all Facebook is anymore is all this cat fighting. I, I stay away from that anymore. I, I just very lightly touch the surface because I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of these... Uh, you know, I have my opinions and all that, and and and, but you know, maybe I could uh, when I'm I'm trying to get a hundred people in a theater, and I'm not I'm not going to talk about any of that stuff. Then I don't want to run them away. I mean, but I may be a chicken shit on that level, but no, you're that's smart. not that's not what I do. You know, it's, I, that has to be what you want to do because you will alienate people for sure. And I know I lost friends during this election. And and I'm kind of just okay with it, you know, because yeah. Uh, but but it's not great. And I also run a business, and you know, one of my customers is also a friend. She's like, Jason, I just, you know, I don't feel like I like you anymore, and that makes me sad because I really really like you. Yeah, you know, and, I don't and, even know which side you were on or talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm happy to say I don't care. I mean, I'm you know, I yeah. was I was I was pro. I was a Bernie. I mean, I'm left. I'm I'm left leaning. I, I thought Bernie was the most. Policies aside, I think Bernie was the most uh, honest politician out there ever. Yeah, he yeah. just—he's yeah. never stopped saying the same thing, and he's such a humanist. Yeah, I mean, I really—he's the first guy I've ever up. I mean, and I love Obama, and I, I will love Obama until the day I die. I'm not saying he's perfect, but I loved him. Right, and but I always felt like I've just never seen a politician who I think genuinely cares about people more than Bernie Sanders. And the yeah. day after he lost, he didn't cry. Or complained, he just got out there and started campaigning and going back after the issues. And as soon as Trump took office, he's just thumping away at the issues he cares about. I mean, he hasn't stopped fighting. He hasn't let it affect him negatively at all, from what I can see. Yeah, and it's like it's so personal now. It's not about policy anymore. It's that uh, this guy wants to cut taxes because he's evil, and all this back. Maybe yeah. that's he's got all these guys got business people in their. With their hands in their pockets, you yeah, know, their their pockets are all of them. Their pockets are lined. Or Bernie, I don't think they were. You know, I, no, they weren't. They weren't. Um, no one's giving him money. <laughs> I mean, no one in big, no one with money likes Bernie. I mean, because no, he's 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 not he's not for sale. But I I was talking to a guy you know over a beer the other night, and I said, yeah, same thing. I was like Bernie, like, well, he's a clown. He's he just started ragging on him, like, you know, I. Like President Obama, I thought he was just savagely criticized, you know. I didn't agree with all his policies, per se. Many of them I did, but he wasn't uh, perfect. But, you know, in, in many ways, he was the Jackie Robinson of presidents. He, he had no room for scandal, and he had, when, he, when scandal was thrown upon him or, or, or uh, uh, just people name-calling and all that jazz, he, he knew it had to— Roll off to a certain extent. Oh yeah, but the last year he pushed back a little bit. Oh yeah, <laughs> I I don't know if you ever watched the uh, White House correspondence dinners. Oh yeah, he's and funnier than we he's are. He's so funny. Yeah, he's a great comedian. And and uh, one of them he said, you know, 
you know, I'm going on my last year and people have asked me if I have a bucket list and I don't. He said, I do have a a list that rhymes with bucket. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Oh, it was great. And then he's like, you know, it's talked about all these things that were, you know, he's like fracking bucket, you know, like (laughs) all these things that he, and he just used the word bucket every time. And it was so brilliantly funny. That was, I wish I'd have seen that. Well, you can, it's on YouTube. Yeah. You can watch is that the one with Larry Wilmore? No. Uh, Which who I thought well, he maybe, would, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I thought he bombed. Yeah, he didn't that. do as he didn't do as well as he could have. I'll tell you who did great. Wanda Sykes was hilarious. Yeah, I didn't see her. Oh, she's I I love her. Um, she was did one of the first ones I think. Um, and I forget who did the year before that, but I don't know. I watch them all. Like I watch them on YouTube. I mean, I I, I deliberately. This year I was, not this year, but the last time Obama did it, uh, I was so excited for it that I was ready for it. As soon as it was done, I threw it up on my Facebook page. Like, I was waiting for it to be available because I just knew it was going to be hysterical. Right. And I had some friends uh, on Facebook that said, oh, it was just one of these conspiracy theories. Like, Obama's trying to create unrest so uh, he can have martial law and he can... Have a third term. I go. Nobody wants to get his ass out of that job more than him. He, he wants to go fishing. Wait. And <laughs> he was like, I, at some point, someone said, uh, "So are you? Are you worried about? You know, are you upset about or sad of the presidency? Your term is ending." He's like, "I got two hundred and sixty-four days." <laughs> Anyone who's counting the days is not sad that yeah. it's over. He's he doesn't want to uh, capture a third term. No, no, he's uh, which is too bad because I mean. If ever there was someone who I would like to have be president for the rest of my life, it would be Obama. I mean, I just, I just trust, I mean, I, I trust his vision. I know it's, you know, he's not perfect and people want to complain about whatever, but, and he, you know, he's more centrist than I think a lot of people would like, but uh, I just felt like he understood the mechanic of governing. Oh, he was, uh, and he became a better politician as the time came on. And, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't perfect, but uh, you want to see What's not perfect is what's going on now. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I'm willing to give anybody the benefit of the doubt. And if, uh, if President Trump would act a little more presidential, and I guess he's delegating, but you, you just even – I, I, I was a Ronald Reagan Republican back in the day. But it just, you know, when certain things happen, like, you know, that what you're doing is not good for me. These guys are people I voted for. They're not my – they're not my family. I don't have to stick by them, right? Like glue, no matter what they do. And it's it's almost where some people support President Trump like the the girlfriend who brought home the leader of the pack. You know, you don't understand he's 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 bad in your eyes, but you got to know him. And I'm like, well, I'm trying. I'm <laughs> yeah. very, trying very hard. I saw a comedian recently. I wish I remembered his name. He said, you know. I, he said, I, I never could have voted for Trump. He said, but I could date a Trump supporter because I could pretty much do whatever I want, and she's going <laughs> to forgive me. <laughs> and I thought that said it all really well. But I, I found that, I mean, he was, there was that whole meme with him uh, slamming a CNN reporter to the floor like somebody had, yeah, he was yeah. in championship wrestling for a while or something. And and then it, people were talking about, you know, he really treated the presidency like a championship wrestling match and has treated his imp- opponents political opponents like championship wrestling opponents. And once I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, that that really is the thing. Like, that's what's happening. It makes total sense. The spectacle. Yeah. yeah. And just like, and calling them names and, and, you know, what's the, like, quickest, most direct route to bringing them down? 
that was his approach. Right. And and it worked. It was very effective. I mean, it was horrifying as far as I'm concerned, but it but it worked, man. He just and they and they said, you know, if he tags you with some nickname, it's like it's gonna stick. So I'd like for him to insult me. That that would, just to put butts in the seat. You know, <laughs> how many million followers does he have? I well, a lot of them are bots. That's the new thing that everyone's realizing. Like, there's a very interesting article I just put on my Facebook page. So I know every once in a while you 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 were kind enough to like my stuff and comment. And I put one up sometime in the last week or so that about four an estimated four million of his Twitter followers are bots, meaning they're not real people, they're not real accounts. And the vast majority of them are African American and Hispanic and female. And so that was used first of all, the way those are used is like every six hours they'll post a meme or something just to be active accounts and create credibility for the account. And then anytime he tweets something, they will retweet it. Well he retweeted one of these bots tweets and outed his own bots because then people went to that and realized it wasn't real and then they that uncovered this whole thing of like oh a lot of these aren't real like the the uh um avatar that people used for the twitter account were these latina t-shirt models well they used the same model wearing different t-shirts for different accounts and pretty quickly you recognize like there's 400 accounts with the same female latina t-shirt model and then that was just one set of accounts and then there's a bunch of others. I didn't know anything about this. Yeah. And so it so this did a couple things. One is it creates traffic and it what it does is it creates the news cycle. So basically he says something and now 4 million twitter accounts are instantly talking about it and then that makes a lot of other twitter accounts talk about it and that becomes the news. And so that create what the the phrasing the terminology they're using now is that creates the news cycle. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. Now that's the conversation that everyone's happen, everyone's having. And the other thing for me, which was really insidious, was a lot of these people were minorities. And so that made it seem like blacks and Latinos were actually retweeting and supporting what he was saying. And then that made it more appealing to other African-Americans and Latinos to say, oh, you know what? Actually, he's got some traction with the Latino and the black community. I'm black. I'm Latino. Maybe I should hear what he says more and give more credibility to what he says. And I think, I don't have any research for this, but I think that's a, a huge part of how he captured as much of that vote as he did. And it wasn't like he captured every black and Latino a vote in the country. He didn't have to. He just got more of them than expected. And he didn't. He just got more of this group than expected and more of that group than expected. And all that yeah. stuff added up to him winning. And not to mention him, him saying outrageous things that appealed to extremist groups. And as long as he was supporting their extreme point of view, they didn't care what else he said. Like, I have a friend who voted for Trump, and the biggest reason is that he believe he's afraid the Democrats are going to take his guns away. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the only reason. He's like... And he believes that with his heart and soul. He believes it with his heart and soul, and it's reason enough to vote for Trump, and it doesn't matter... About all these other things that like Trump abortion does, or whatever he immigration doesn't care about any of it. He's blind to all the things that conflict with what he cares about. He only cares about that his most important issue is going to be protected, and it's a pretty dumb one to go for because realistically, there's no political group that's going to take people's guns away. I mean, even though I would love to see that happen, it's just there's not been happen. no uh, legislation introduced 
other than the 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 assault rifles and and registering them and the and the the mental health right test, the background you know? checks yeah it's just you know I was always I was I thought that was in place already I thought how own, could it not be owning a car owning a guns like driving a car is like this is your vehicle and you're responsible for it and you need it licensed and insured and it absolutely should be I mean. That's interesting, insured. I don't know if you need insurance to own a gun. Like, you should have to have gun insurance. Like, if you shoot someone... It's it's in, a uh, lethal weapon. You should be responsible for it. Absolutely, you should be responsible for it. I just never thought about the whole insurance game around well, it, I too. just popped up with yeah, the well, car. Yeah, because you're an insurance Auto, auto home and life. You should start selling gun insurance. You've got a whole... Uh, yeah, you could, yeah. You could do that. When you're in the South, man, you can make it a fortune. You don't need a merch table. You just have a gun insurance table at the end of your show. I'll be selling gun insurance. It'll be gun insurance. After the yeah. show. I don't You'll own a gun. I don't have any T-shirts, but I got, I got I got an insurance policy for you. You never know. I could just sell gun insurance. Yeah, yeah. it could be your whole comedy thing. Could just be a ruse to get people to the merch table to buy gun insurance. I could buy a pol- sell a policy that in case they come take your guns away, we'll cover you. There you go. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how we we'd pay off. You know. Be a scam you won't have to. You won't, you'll ne- you'll <laughs> yeah, never, we'll never have to have pay that call. off. You never, you'll never have to pay that off. But you could be like, God forbid run, another Democrat gets in office, they take your guns away, we got you covered. That I'd, be, would be, I'd run right out of town like the music man. Oh, my God. You, would, you could go as far as you wanted because you would be, you'd be rich quickly. <laughs> that would be fascinating. Oh. That, write that down in your book, man. That is a career move. A gun insurance? A gun insurance. No, I don't yeah. think so. Okay, I don't, good, think, good. I don't think I'll get into that business. I'm glad to hear that. Now you still get nervous when you go on stage? Uh, not like I was in Hendersonville, boy. I was a wreck. Well, I didn't see it. Then, oh, so. um, you know, sometimes, but not nothing like I used to. And I don't know. I'll ask me again after the show. I'll I'll tell you whether or not I got nervous tonight. I mean, I have some material now, which is the stuff I really developed in that school, which is pretty bulletproof. You know, I mean pretty bulletproof. Like, I've had it where it didn't all land as well as I would have thought or as well as it has in other rooms. I mean, you never know. Yeah, yeah. Not all your audience is going to love every joke equally. But I have enough material that I know well enough and have delivered enough times and have succeeded with sufficiently enough times that I feel comfortable out there. Like, I can lean on that. I'm not out there just spitting in the wind and I have no idea. So that helps. Uh, but... There's always a little something, you know. I don't get as nervous as anymore, and then I'll get out on stage like two or three words in, and, I, and then it hits me that I should have been a little more nervous about being out here. You know? <laughs> this isn't going well. I yes, should have got my ducks in order. Oh, now's not the time. Yeah, and to where because I'll be in the middle of a, of a show, and there's certain jokes that are it's it's almost like my uh, uh, jokes. All the the whole set is a home, and then I'll get to a, a certain thing in there where the punchline just goes okay, and it's and it's like the homeowner going like, you know, that's that leaky faucet right. that I've been always meaning to fix. Yeah. And then once the show's over and it does okay, I'm past that. It was like, well, I'll do it still some other nice time. House. So I get back to it the next <laughs> night. It's yeah. still leaking. Right. And so I'm, I'm real bad about that. But I used to get. Oh, I used to get pretty nervous. I, actually, the more nervous I am, there's a certain level that's that's good, good energy. Yeah. To where if you're failing nervous, like we talked about when I did the, my first guest set, and you just failed, um, that's nervousness. I don't I don't like that's shit hits at the fan nervousness. And 
But I've, you know, I've, there's, uh, when you get to work around really, really, really good comics. One of them was, uh, of course, I, I cut my teeth with Julie, but hers is the Southern audience, you know, so she'd yeah. take me to do 30, 25, 30 minutes in front of her. And that is far from my wheelhouse audience. So right. I just had to learn to make my way through that. And, um, but I'd, I'd see that there was a, I met him at the stardom, a cowboy Bill Martin. Was, and he's, now he's like a rock star on the cruise ships. And, but this guy wore a cowboy hat and he never, he rarely talked about anything cowboy. He wasn't a Southern trailer park kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of like how um, Eddie Izzard wears, Women's clothes, right? And he never talks about wearing women's clothes. He just, if he did, he I, did. There was a time when he did. Yeah, there yeah. was a time when he. Now his audience expects it of him. Yeah, but, and then that's the same. This yeah. guy wears a cowboy hat and a, and the cowboy things, and he he's from Texas and all that. But he's just re- a real sharp joke writer, and he mm. really carries the room. But I noticed, like when when he'll go up, he has that knack, that timing to wear, blah 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 blah. Punchline, and if it doesn't get anything, he has that tone of voice to turn that to where that wasn't supposed to be funny. It was a statement instead of a punchline. Punchline sometimes for me is, bam, that's it. Nothing more to follow. Right. You know, and just there naked. <laughs> where he is just like, punchline. And he realizes right away it didn't land. And he goes, punchline. And then, and then, and then, he goes on like it didn't even phase him. That wasn't supposed to be funny anyway. Mm. And he just goes right in it with confidence. Pretty soon he has the whole room rolling. Right. Steve Martin did that. He had all those little things he would do, like, you know, play the banjo or do, you know, little dance moves. All that stuff was designed to manage a fail moment on stage. And also part of his whole thing was playing the role of the awful comic like just the worst possible entertainer. Yeah. That became his entity. And then he mastered it to the point that he was really, really good at being really, really bad. Yeah. And it didn't matter what he did, it all won. Like he was just, I mean, and I, I don't know if you ever watched any of his TV stuff, like TV specials, but he comes out on stage and it's two minutes of standing ovation, laughter, and applause before he says a fucking word. This one word, yeah. You know? yeah. And then all he has to do is be like, Hello, you know he's like. Excuse me. Yeah, right. Me. Excuse me. Yeah. And then, and then they interrupt Just, for another five minutes. I mean, yeah, just, I guess he's earned that. But uh, I saw him in college. I paid the money, you know, and I went to 1976. I guess I paid the money. Saw his Let's Get Small tour. You mm. know, s- smoked the joints before I went to the show, and you laughed at stuff you knew was coming. Yeah, but he was so funny. I've listened to Let's Get Small on on Spotify. I've listened to all of his old stuff and it's fantastic i love it it's so understated and smart he's so smart you know i just uh, i just he just great pulls back the setup you know like you yeah it comes down to actually it's just not that surprise you know some of the punchlines are surprises but you know i I often wondered if you just like a zapped everybody's memory and just let him start today, whether it would go over like it did at the time. I don't, I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, he was he was bigger than big. Like he, and he just quit. You know, I mean, you know, he just stopped. Yeah, he, yeah. He's, uh, well, he didn't. He had other avenues, you know, make movies and all that. And he just got tired of the. 
He said he got lonely, depressed, and isolated. I read his. I don't know if you read his book, Born Standing Up, but yeah, uh, it's so good. And he's like, I was just. He said it got to the point where I would, and he told a pretty funny story where he was at a college show, and they said, "Look, they're going to mob me after this. You guys got to sneak me out the back door and get me in a car as quick as you can and get me out of here." And he said, it "Got to the back door, there was nobody." <laughs> yeah. He looked like such an ass for making that uh, presumption. But generally speaking, and you know, going forward from then. They really did. They had to whisk him out the back into a car to his hotel. Nobody would talk to him. They had to protect him to the point that he was 100% isolated. He couldn't go out to eat. He had to get room service. And he became really lonely and depressed. Yeah. The more successful he got, the more lonely, depressed, and isolated he felt and was. You know. And then he tells that story about being on a date with a woman. And she's like, oh, well, you know, I, I, he's like, so how does someone so beautiful like you not have a boyfriend? She's like, oh, I have a boyfriend. It's like, well... Does he know that you're out to dinner with me? And she said, oh, yeah, he knows. But he said, it's fine. He's like, hey, if you had a chance to be with Steve Martin, you should. you know. And, he's, and then he was like, that did it. That, that was one of the things that like broke it for him. He's like, I'm going to have to read that book again. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I really would like to hear him read that book out loud. Like That should be an audio Yeah, book, an audible. It's so written in his... Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know if audible. it is, then I would... Then let's do that and then reconnect and talk about it again. He's just, man, that guy is... He's, just a monster. You know, I was talking to some other comics about um, comics I never got, you know, and, and one of them was Bill Hicks. Mm. I never got Bill Hicks. I, because for one thing, I listened to him on Sirius. He has this, uh, you know, if you don't think how I am, you're stupid you're right. uh, yeah. attitude. And then I hear the laughter he got was just chuckles. And then sometimes, you know, he'd, he'd walk rooms and all that. And like, you now if I'm a club owner, why would I want to have Bill Hicks in my room? He might fill the room, but, you know, he's walked rooms, you know. I, and I just, I got uh, his philosophy and all that, but I didn't, I didn't really, it, I, I want to, and it's my personal preference when I go out on a, I don't want to know, I want to forget about the world for an hour. I don't want to learn how, what's wrong with it, you right. know, and... That's kind of the attitude I have to take to the cruise ships, too. You're here on vacation, folks. We're forgetting about the bullshit back there on the land. It doesn't know. matter who's president of the no. land. We're at sea. No, I don't want to talk about that. Yeah, that makes I want sense. to talk about why you wait in line for this buffet food, and, and you know, I, just, I just tell jokes about what they're experiencing that week, you know, because that's, that's what's happening. These, yeah. these people have saved years, some of them. Right. And they and they, they come as groups and they buy T-shirts like this is the Smith family reunion cruise. They all have these T-shirts on and, and you can't clock in and say, "Oh, this is a, you know." They're excited. Yeah, you got to be yeah, as yeah. excited as they are about being here. Yeah, it's one thing I had to learn because it's it's you go out on another ship. It's it's kind of like after you've been out for like three weeks on fifteen days and you go back home for. Five days, then you fly back in. You get back on the ship, pulling your suitcase on. It's like you got to check. It's like checking back into the joint. Like you violated parole, <laughs> <laughs> sentenced to another fifteen yeah. days. And they put you back in a room that's smaller than this one. Of course, we're on the podcast, but it's there's a bed and a desk and a toilet, and it's very much like a jail cell. You know. So as long, we, as, long we, as you don't have cellmates, so they give you cellmates, or you got your own room. We don't, but some of the other crew that are there on the, the contracts have uh, their bunk beds, you know. they. Oof. 
So what, what a lot of them do is they get boyfriends and girlfriends, or some boyfriends get boyfriends and vice yeah. versa, you know. And uh, so then they're just shacking up with the people that they like, you know, for that contract. And my wife, you know, she she was not used to this uh, lifestyle because there's there's really nothing. There's a crew bar down there where the beer's really cheap for the crew, and right. so we would go down there. And, it's a, you know, and I take my wife on there. First of all, my wife can't stop being a teacher. We get to go in the airport, and she's like, "Are you sure we're going the right way?" And I'm like, "You know, I do this every week, so just <laughs> follow me. It'll be okay." Yeah. And then we're in the crew bar after the shows, and it's like. One o'clock, and I, I don't know how many beers this is, but she goes, haven't you had enough? And I go, well, I don't come to your job. And tell, <laughs> <laughs> tell you how to do that. But then I showed her the, the, the in the uh, the mess there, there's a machine there that, you know, you just it's free. There's Tylenol and motion sickness and this, and then there's condoms. You just flip a sit, switch in free, one drop. Free, you know, free yeah. yeah. And she's mad. She's mad. She's like, now, why are there free condoms there? Like, because these these are young kids; they're going to use them, you know. Yeah, and she's mad at you for there yeah, being for, condoms for some reason. Why she, do you need condoms, Sid? Yeah, well, why why are you going on these cruise ships? Like with all they these they free put condoms? that machine there with me in mind. It's <laughs> like, well, Sid's working with us now. We need free condoms in this. That's machine. right. Yeah, you're like, well, if they had Viagra coming out of the other knob, then <laughs> you'd have something to worry about. Sorry, that should be you telling that joke. I don't mean to accuse you. No, of no, but Viagra. that's a. The, in uh, Mexico, they have uh, over-the-counter Viagra. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's the good stuff, like with real. It's the same stuff. It's with real sugar. <laughs> it's the same stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's and uh, it's about one one hundredth, maybe one fiftieth the price. I know it's crazy. Yeah, that and that, I don't know if they have the opioids yet. I haven't. I mean, they make them there. Yeah, I don't know if they sell those over the counter, like the Oxycontin or something like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. They probably do. Yeah. But all that stuff, well, I mean, all that stuff comes from there, the whole black tar heroin thing that's going on right now in our country. It's crazy. That's oh, a, have you tried that, the black tar heroin? I haven't hey. tried it, but I've been, I've, been reading the, I've been reading the book about it. Um, I started about a, I don't know, four or five months ago, and I just I got about 50 pages in and put it down because I realized, like, I don't actually need to know every detail about the heroin trade in America. I kind of I have now enough understanding of how horrible it is and how it's happened, but I kind of want to keep reading the book. It's really well written, um, but I think it's called Wonderland or something like that. And all yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's it's really good, man. It's really good, written by a really good journalist, really compelling story. And is there a movie about that too? The kind of maybe there's a movie called yeah. Wonderland. That could be. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I know I know uh, people my age, their kids. Um are involved with heroin, you know, and it's just ruins their lives. Totally ruins their lives. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just so fortunate. You know, I went through the whole seventies, eighties drug thing and experimented. I'm, I'm just glad I, ne that never appealed to me. It scared me actually. Yeah. And you know, all the films they showed with the needles and the, well, and AIDS was so album. popular in the eighties, like, you know, and intravenous. Yeah. That's a great way to spread AIDS. So it's like, it was pretty easy not to do heroin in the eighties. Yeah. You know, now, I mean, you know the whole cycle that happens, right? Is that people get injured, they get prescribed these opioids. Opioids, yeah. And then Percus, the insurance Percus. runs out, and then they start buying it on the street, and even that gets too expensive. So then they turn to heroin, because now they're fully addicted. And heroin is relatively cheap. 
except that the more you do, the more you have to do. And so the habit becomes very expensive very quickly. Yeah. And then this black tar heroin is, is I don't know if it's a quality control issue or, or what the issue is specifically, but people are ODing on it left, right, and center. I mean, and, and people from, you know, wealthy or upper middle class or just middle class families, you know, it's not just... Yeah, it's not on the street and, yeah, the street corners anymore. Yeah, yeah. right. It's, it's really... So we really got off topic here. Dark, that's uh, good. That's all right. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's this is about being real, you know. But I, I do want to hear the transition for you from airplane mechanic to comedian. So well, it was a retired, you know, and retired with the so flight they did, benefits. They didn't. And uh, they didn't pack your things for you at that job. No, no, you no, were a good we, mechanic. I got to clean out my locker. <laughs> got to oh the. If you're ever going to pilfer from somebody, an airline is excellent. They have, they have the best stuff out of the maintenance department. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have a garage full of really kick-ass tools that yeah, well, you'll never need? One or two. One or two. Yeah. But there there was a uh, – I, I left there, and I started with the Comedy Zone, took the class. and Then I, I went back for – just because I was bored, I got on with the uh, U.S. Airways Express, which is – the subsidiary, mm-hmm. you know, it was a whole different. And I started, I was a baggage handler again. Like, you had this, did you have to start from the bottom or you just wanted to get some exercise? I just wanted to get some exercise. And and, and I'd go there and, and now this, this is the commuters. This isn't the old school. Sure, yeah. Um, so these are a bunch of kids and, no, oh, they just, uh, you know, I got to know them after a while, but I was the employee of the month because for a whole month, I showed up for work. <laughs> <laughs> That's all and, it took to get the best parking space. Yeah. And it's just amazing how, you know, you hear on the radio, jobs are tough and all that. I, I don't know what they paid. I think there was like $12 an hour at the time. And, uh, which, you know, I just come off of a mechanic job that was $32 an hour. So, right. which I hardly had to work. You know, the pace was a lot slower. And I'm, I'm, I'm out there throwing bags. And I'm out there at my jobs that somebody else didn't show up. So I'm doing, you know, like somebody in their plane's about ready to go out on these little jet commuters. And the the, the girl that's running the gate comes and goes, you, you need to pick it up a little more. And I go, this is as fast as I go for $12 an hour. Right here. This, is, this, is, this is my speed. Yeah. Well, then, then it's when I worked at the other job, the airline uh, had a union, you know, the the IAM, and um, they'd have contract negotiations, and then they'd come out and tell me, like, hey, you said, we're, uh, we just want to remind you, you're on a slowdown. We're on a slowdown now. And I'm like, I, I, I can't move any slower, folks. I, <laughs> I, 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 this I, is my $12 an hour slow rate. Too. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> that I'm getting the big money for. I did. <laughs> I can't go faster. I can't go slower. This is just how this is how I roll. Yeah, that was the that was the, the greatest job I ever had. It was stress free free because when you went home from that job, somebody that was there to take care of it. It all it all worked without you. Right. Uh, you didn't have to. It was one of those where if you took a week off when you came back, your job was there waiting for you. You know, it's all names and numbers. Yeah, there weren't stacks of bags that hadn't been loaded because you weren't there. Nah, that weren't my fault. No, but. Right. There, there was. Now I, I knew uh, Sully. I mean, I knew him in passing. The, the hero pilot. Oh right. Yeah, I, I used to push the planes back, and I talked to him many times on the headphones. 
Is he a good guy? Yeah, yeah. I just knew him going down the hallway. He wouldn't know me if you ask him. Right. You know, I, oh, Sid. I remember Sid. He's yeah, yeah. Hell of a baggage guy. <laughs> yeah. He, he just... You should have seen him when he cleaned the planes. <laughs> well, this is when I was in the maintenance department. And, and sometimes it was... You just hear his voice because you're down there in the tractor in the nose of the plane. You, you know, you're just talking right. to him upstairs. And he flew the Airbuses. But uh, here's a, a, a funny story about how um, I was pushing a plane back. You know, you push it straight back and you turn it to where it points out and then you unhook the tow bar and it's ready to go. We'd pushed it, turn this plane. It's a 757 that was ready to go to Los Angeles and engine one had started, engine two was starting. It was spooling up. As we get, I get around to unhook the tow bar, I noticed that one of these tugs, it was one of these tractors that pulls the carts around, had kicked into gear and it was kind of like, making its way out towards the airplane, and, and it was without question going to hit the engine cowling that was mm. spinning, and it, I, I'd say it was about 15 yards away. So I said, you know, I made a decision. I'm going, I'm going to, I think I can make it over there, but I'm not going to get too close to the engine because there's like a 13-feet thing. If you get in there, the, the engine could suck you in, an idling engine. Oh, know? wow. Oh, yeah, it's no good. Yeah, it'll, it'll kill you, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's not, that's not a, not a ride you want to take. So I went around that, and I, I, I timed a jump. I jumped on the tug, and it was going about as fast as a person walking at a brisk pace. It wasn't right. that heroic, but I, I was, you know, within 10 feet of Mike, the envelope where, okay, I got to let it go. Right. But I jumped on there and drove it off, and, the, and then uh, the plane went away without incident. Uh, about an hour later, the guy that was on the gate, whether he was the mechanic lead he was lead form lead no he wasn't the foreman he was a lead he came hey we just did some calculations and uh, we figured all said and done you just saved the company uh, eight million dollars because the plane whether we had to cancel we sure. had to put the people yeah, elsewhere yeah. the plane we had to go in the hangar another aircraft we had to b- replace that one while that was out there's a lot of money when equipment hits the aircraft sure. so uh I'm feeling on top of the world. I go in the foreman's office with my lead mechanic and the, the shop steward. And they go, this is uh, Sid Davis. And they told him what happened. They saved us $8 million. He look, and the foreman looks at me and goes, yeah. hmm. And he looks at me and goes, Davis. And he looks down at his papers and goes, didn't you clock in late this morning? <laughs> <laughs> so I got docked an hour's pay. For, for saving eight million dollars. For saving eight million dollars, so. So I called in sick the next day, and that was the beginning of the. It was my eight million dollar day. It was. <laughs> <laughs> was that the beginning of the end for you? No, no, I, that job was. I would have worked there. Till you know, I, I was tired of it because cleaning the planes was the best. I find the magazines, and every now and then you'd find. Um, Disc players were the big thing back then, the oh. compact disc players. I always had this joke. We had our lost and found, which was called eBay. <laughs> <laughs> but, now, what I do is uh, I'd find, uh, if I found a CD player, I'd take it to the front of the gate. And I said, I found this and seat this. Right. And um, give it, we'd... My friends would put it away, and they go, "Well, if we don't hear from in the next hour, then you know, at the end of the shift, we just kept it." You know, right? Sure. What are you gonna do? But I found I found a lot of wallets, you know, billfolds, 
And what I, w- I would do, which, what, you, what you were supposed to do is take it up to the front, fill out paperwork and all that, and then uh, it goes through a process, which the process has a lot of hands yeah. touching that wallet. And so I would, uh, I'd, I'd look at the ID and I'd go ask my friend at the gate. I said, "Who's this guy? Was this guy on the plane? Yeah. What seat was he in? Where's he? Where's he going?" He goes, "Well, he's connecting over at LaGuardia Gate B two, you know." Right. And it was just kind of fun for me to go over B two and have him paged Joe Smith and say, and Joe Smith would come up and I go, "Hey, does this look familiar?" And they just like their their butt would pucker up like, "Oh my God!" You yeah. Know, I, they, they were really. very thankful, but one guy went in one time. Was, I wasn't even a comedian at the time. I was just a smartass, you know. And he goes, hey, there was $300 in here. And I go, so? He goes, or is there, there was $320 in here. I go, yeah. He goes, well, there's only 300 now. And I go, wasn't it worth $20 to find an honest person? <laughs> <laughs> I could have taken it all. And well, I didn't take any of it. I, of course, yeah. He goes, well, I'm going to write you up. And I'm like, I could have, I didn't take it. I don't, I didn't even look in it other than your ID. Yeah. And your daughter's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but laptop computers or stuff like that. You do, I did the people a big favor by finding oh, where yeah, they were. Because it, it, it takes four months to get it back, if you get it back. I found a guy's wallet in the airport once sitting under my chair. Like somebody across me pointed it out to me, and so I went up to the to the desk, and the, sure enough, they they you know called him over the loudspeaker, and he came back and got his wallet, and he was thankful. You know, it was like sixty bucks in there, it wasn't enough to keep worth keeping it. No, and he was military, so I couldn't live with myself. You know, I found the flip flip phones were the big thing back then. You'd find a phone and um. They weren't locked then. You'd call people. We had some guy that was thought it was he was you know how the the baggage handlers are below if you're a passenger they're below in the in the uh, plane putting bags on you know right and this is the story I mean it's, the guy there was below he took out his cell phone you know on the, on the suitcases say you're sitting above there and he called this guy's cell phone from the tag on the bag and goes uh, hey, Mr. Shredder do you have a Black Samsonite suitcase. You know, yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be on this uh, plane I'm sitting on. He goes, well, uh, it's not going to make it. You know? <laughs> <And> hang up. <laughs> and then, then the guy got, you know, he didn't think about it. The, 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 the number, you know, the guy would call and make a complaint. He, they'd trace that number, you know. Right. But it's a union job. He, got his, he just got slapped on the wrist, but. Still funny. That's it's very funny. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I was never one of those that sit around in in the airport in groups of people. I was never the alpha comic in the break room. I, I was always just kind of sitting back and listening and, and minding my own business. It, there'd be other people that'd be louder, and you know, I, I didn't ever want to compete. I don't. I don't like competing. Like if it's a group at a bar or something like that, right? I, I'm with you. I'm let somebody saying. else have the spotlight. You know, I, I wait for my my in. Yeah, and then once I have it, once I find it and I have it, then I don't let go, but not in a, an aggressive way. Just yeah. but once I find my rhythm, then you know I'm 
funny for the rest of the night. But yeah. but I sit quietly and, and wait. I'm good for three lines, you know, two or three lines, and then just turn it back over to the show. But if it's if I get into, you know, it's my space, my show, and all that, then I'll no. grab the reins and ride it out. Sure. But other, and that's and then once I'm done with that, I'm done with that. I don't. I I tell you that that show about the comedians is really. Oh, absolutely! Watch it. Uh, yeah, and they were just the most miserable people. Yeah, I mean, as evidenced by Robin Williams demise i mean yeah he must have been so depressed but but if he was the kind of person like or he or jim carrey same way they're just like if i'd i if i'd, I'd want people to turn that off every now and then and you could see why they had four or five wives if they couldn't oh yeah you know like shut up you know. <laughs> i would imagine the thing is i mean they I don't know that they don't turn it off when they're alone. Like I, I can imagine them going inward in a in a very dark way, you know. Yeah, I, I and I guess it depends on who they are, but yeah, I, I um, Johnny Carson. There was a book on Johnny Carson uh, by his lawyer Henry Bushkin that uh, is fascinating about how he was that nice guy for an hour a night, and then he was not a monster, but just wasn't a nice guy, and particularly, he had his little circle of friends. It right. actually won, but none of those guys, that, you know, that pay homage to him, like um, Seinfeld or uh, Gary Shandling. You know, he's he's gone. But I mean, they all speak like they, they owe him for their career. But very few people knew him on a personal level. It was all, you know, he would he hated showing up at parties. But when he'd show up, he'd be Johnny for a few minutes and do card tricks, and then. Leave and he just liked to drink. He didn't yeah, he was like an alcoholic. <laughs> he started bar fights. I mean, he was a he was in New York. He did. Yeah, he did in L.A. A little there was bit. one in L.A. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, somebody'd come up and bother him, and he didn't want to be bothered. Yeah, by right. Him. I mean, he was, he was a wicked drinker. Didn't take much. He's little. <laughs> I didn't, how how little was he? He was five ten or. Something. Uh, I don't know. He looked smaller than that. I have no idea. He looked he looked small. I mean, I'm six feet, but uh, I never, I've never stood next to him. No. But have you been on any late night TV shows? Not, not a no. I, I did uh, laughs on Fox. I did the taping. Okay. Me and Mike Spienberg. And uh, I, I had a, I had a pretty funny set. I thought it was pretty good, but I never got on. And of course, everybody that's open for me's been on has that TV credit. Oh, uh, really? Even and the people that MC for me. Have been on there, and they sound, I, they sound like Janet Williams. You ever, you know her? Yeah, she's the same way. She's like, she's like Jason. I'm going to take you on the road and make you famous. Everyone who's ever worked for me has become famous. I'm just still chugging away, you know. But uh, but she hasn't done that yet. But I love Janet. Oh man, she is. She's well, did the she best. come here and do one of these shows? Yeah, and... she did one in Hendersonville. Yeah, I, I yeah. ended up. Uh, so, uh, Mike, who's producing this show, he produced the show that, that you did where I opened for you, where you and I met in Hendersonville. And then he gave up that venue. He parted ways with, and he handed it off to me. And so I, uh, produced, and I, when I say produced, I mean, just, I handled the talent. I didn't handle the venue. I partnered up with Mike's old partner and, and that guy handled all the business side. I handled the talent and I hosted the shows, which was perfect for me. And... So I, I hosted Julie, so that's why I met her. 
and uh, and we did a podcast together. I love Julie. She was maybe one of the first ones that I did with a comedian. And then on New Year's, we did a show with three headliners: Jackie, no, no, Spanky, Spanky, um, Jack Wilhite. Yep, yep. And then Janet Williams. Well, wow, where they get thirty minutes a piece? Or? No, they get uh, forty-five. Yeah. Wow, it's a long show. Yeah, we had intermissions after every between comics, and you know, I did a pretty full set up front, and then I would do like two or three, two to five minutes, depending on how much time the room needed, just to kind of get people back and focused, and then I'd introduce them. You know, right? Um, I was I was very careful not to overdo my time between comics. I was just there to make sure that when they came on stage, the room was a little bit warmed back up again, and 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 the doors were closed, and everyone was paying attention. You know, that was. That was my job. I had that uh, when I would go places. Julie, she took me along as as her feature, and I learned a lot from her. But it was just you know I, I never. For one thing, I got moved up to headlining, and then uh, her genre of comedy is just not like mine. So I just kind of found my own audience, right? And we're still good friends, but. She was so generous in, in, on many levels, and I was working with her in Knoxville, and it was a Saturday night. She was folding up her T-shirts. It was probably 12, 15 mi- after midnight, 15 after midnight, and um, I had a flight to catch in the morning, and it was uh, I needed to leave the airport at 4.45 a.m., and a taxi was $40, and I said, listen, can you do me a favor? The airport's 15 minutes away. Can I... Will you take me to the airport and then you, and save me forty dollars? She goes, yeah, sure. She goes, I'll take you in there. You know, I, I'll just get up and take you and come back, take a nap, and then check out because she had to drive on somewhere else. And four forty-five when you at midnight, you know, it's yeah. different than the actual four forty-five when you have yeah, to get right. up. Yeah, yeah. So I'm there, four forty-five, knocking on her door. And the door opens as far as the the chain will let it on the and her hand comes out and gives me forty dollars and, sh- and shuts. <laughs> and, oh, that's great! That's great! Oh, I love Julie. And I was I was doing a, a, a theater in um, Kings Mill, Kings Mill, Virginia, last year, and I was the the host of this whole thing. You know, right. it was two nights, and, and Julie was one of uh, people I had to introduce. And I and I had to do like they said like, because they'd do a comic and do an intermission. I'd have to come back on and right. do a little bit of time. And and I go, well, I'm going to tell that story because I think there's that's far better than any of your credits. Right. Just to tell that story oh, yeah, about yeah. you. Yeah. And it was just there was a nice big laugh coming out, and it was a, a laugh about her. Yeah. And, and it was just so yeah, she was right off right off to the races like she needed any help, but no. But it always helps to come. I mean that. It's just like how you enter the water off a beautiful dive, you know. It's yeah. It's nice if something have your hands in the way to. Right, and it was a, it was funny, and it was a very uh, giving gesture too. It's just the perfect introduction. That was perfect. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. Here she is, Julia. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. She's been very helpful. There, um, there's a guy named Mark Eddy that lives in. He moved to North Carolina for a while. I think in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. And uh, his wife came to a Toastmasters meeting and said, hey, my husband's a comic. And I'm like, well, who, who isn't today? Right. You know? And uh, I got a, a call from this guy. He goes, hey, I'm Mark Eddy. I'm, I'm a comedian. I go, oh, yeah. He goes, I met your wife, Cindy. He goes, what, 
I'm, I'm new in town here. Is there an open mic we can go to? And I go, yeah, yeah. There's. I go to one where Joe Zimmerman goes out, Carlos Valencia, and we were all just – I don't even know if I was a feature at the time. I think I was a feature wannabe. Right. And um, so we got this little place where there's an open mic, and, and uh, I'm, I did a couple of minutes, and somebody else did a couple of minutes, and – Mark Eddy plugs this guitar in, and it's just like, holy shit, there's only 12 people there, and you just, like, ripped it up. And I'm like, well, what was it? And I was driving back home with him. I'm like, wow, you're the real freaking deal, aren't you? And he goes, well, I do okay. And then I got on his website, and I'm like, holy shit, you know. He's he's like a huge corporate entertainer, and mm. but he's rock and roll comedy. Rock and roll comedy. So just like, like Jack Willie does, I mean... Does he write his own songs, or is he spoofing other people's songs? Both, yeah. both. Yeah. Um, but he. Th- I, then I went out to um, L.A. I just flew out there, and he's like, "Hey, come on, you know, comics are always welcome at our house." And so I went by there, and it's true, he had a room there that you know, the comics slept in, and he, we became friends. And he started going around town. We'd go to the comedy store or. Uh, the Comic and Magic Club or the Laugh Factory. And right. they knew who he was. He had kind of like carte blanche and he was it was like, wow, I made a good friend. You know, I, yeah. I, I did he get you on stage in those places? Uh everywhere but the Comedy and Magic Club. Oh well. Why not there? Well, it's just a matter of that the line to get on that stage is so long. Okay. And uh if there was a, a an opening, I'd I'd get on there and it's it, you know, there's all those people that live in L.A. that want to, that, I want to come by and polish my set oh, for the course. Tonight yeah. Show. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then here I am. I'm going to fly in from North Carolina and do seven minutes. Well, you know. That's where you met Gary Shandling? Was that one of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's Comedy Magic Club. Yeah. They have a big green room, and there's all this writing on the wall, and it's just of all these people. It's like a museum. That's so cool. Well, that's how I got in there. Mark Eddy, just, you know, we could... Walk up and now I can call that club and go in and see a show, get a comp ticket, unless it's a paid audience, a special deal. But getting on, you know, you know, I write, I can I get on this week? I'm going to be out there. And he goes, you know, just we're full, but keep trying. Right. It's not a no, but yeah. That's on the bucket list, though. I mean, it's that that's probably the most premier stage as far as I'm concerned in the country. Really? The Comedy Magic Club. More than the Comedy Store? Yes. Yes. Wow. That's, that's like, Jay Leno used to do a show there every Sunday night at the Comedy Magic Club. And you'll have, uh, Gary Shandling drop by, Daniel Tosh would stop by, and just murders row every night. Ah, amazing. Yeah. And they have that at the Laugh Factory, too, but it's... They, at the Laugh Factory, they'll have the Dane Cooks, and they they have the more of the raw hmm. comedy. Where this is like you, you better be good at to be at the Comedy Magic Club, and you better be clever. And you're not, you know, they. Not to say they don't go for the Amy Schumer thing, but they kind of want it PG seventeen. They don't want anything vulgar. Hmm. That's the vibe I got. Yeah. Well, that's you. I mean, you're not vulgar at all. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Well, not on stage, but. Why? <laughs> <laughs> So did you see uh, David Letterman was at a Reds game? Uh, oh, no, I didn't Cincinnati Reds game, right? He's got the beard and everything. Yeah. And the Reds announcer found him. And uh, 
So they're behind. I know they were behind home plate because you could just see the the screen, you know, the, the net right. in front of him. And Dave answers about three questions. He goes, "Okay, this interview's done. Bye bye." <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really bother to me. He wants to watch a game. Yeah, he's as incognito as he can be with that giant beard. I think he's everything but. I think he sticks out more than does he at, than, oh, he, than he would have. He was just so recognizable before. He was just like, uh, yeah, but. He's coming back to Netflix, supposedly. Yeah, that's what I hear. Yeah, I guess he... I'm surprised, actually, that... Yeah, I thought he would... Uh, I'm out and I'm staying out. I always had that impression. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder what kind of show he's going to have, too, because it's... Uh, um, I'm sure it won't be all the hoopla and the band and the monologue and the, all that, but yeah. I don't know. The I mean, nice thing about doing an internet show is, you know, there's so few restrictions. I mean, you can do... It can be as long or as short as you want. Right. And you can kind of produce it when you want. You're not on a fixed season. There's just so many trappings that you're not obliged to anymore. And it's got to be very freeing for those guys who, even though, of course, you know, being the late show or the late, late show, you know, for 30, 40 years, whatever, however long he did it. I mean, yeah, 30 years. That's, well, that's magic, you know. That and the other show, the NBC show he did, you know, probably 30 years totally, total. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously that's a great gig and he'll never, no one in his lineage will ever have to work again. <laughs> no. Uh, but we I know, also can imagine he, you know, he, you miss it. I mean, you're so used to being so high and. He said, I, I, in a recent interview, he said, I don't even miss the late night. I don't even watch it. I don't care. And then a few weeks later, it's like, well, I'm coming back and doing this Netflix thing. So I don't know what the deal was. But it was kind of interesting when I was, I'd grow up and see these documentaries. And, you know, I met Joan Rivers and didn't really talk with her that much. It was all, you know, at a dressing room like this. And right. then she'd have her dressing room and it was... Hi, how are you? And that was that. You know, that's I never got to, to sit down like this and have a conversation. Oh, really? You yeah. should have had a podcast, man. Well, she would. She wouldn't bother with it. <laughs> no. You know, but uh, which she, it was a thing where she went on the Tonight Show and did a thing, and then she had bookings. She was set for her career, and same right. with uh, Brenner, and same with all these Seinfeld, and the list goes on and on. Well, I had a friend, uh, Karen Rontowski, was just a great comedian. I met her at the Comedy Magic Show, Ma Magic uh, Club, and um, followed her on Facebook. And then I was in town, would make it a point, say hi, and just not just. And she was in in Indy when I was in Indies at the other club. So we were on Bob and Tom together, mm. and um, so she was on Letterman. She got her. She goes, I got my first Letterman. And she goes on there and she has a good set. And then I message her and I, two days later and I said, so is uh, life changed? She goes, nope, not at all. Really? Because maybe about three or four more Twitter followers and that's it. <laughs> that's it. And that's, you know, it used to be TV. TV's just so diluted now. Right. And I knew another guy that went on The Tonight Show. Same thing. Joe Zimmerman went on The Tonight Show. He's good. I like Joe. Yeah. I haven't met him, but you must know him because you were you were hanging out back in the came day. Up, right? yeah, yeah, came the up, yeah, same. Together. And it's not like it used to be. That's, but he's been on the Tonight Show. That's really awesome. Yeah, no, it's cool. He's young, right? 
Well, he's pushing 40 now. He's pushing 40, but I mean, how yeah. old are you, if you don't I'm, mind I'll be 60 in March. Okay, so how, you started this in 2005, so that's 12 years ago? Yeah. So, so you started 48. 48. I was 46 when I started. Yeah. So I call myself the midlife comic. That's my, <laughs> that's my, that's my moniker. But uh, well, that, was you, one of the, that was one of the reasons, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons I wanted to sit down and do this with you, but that was one of them, you know, it was like... Sid started around the time in his life that I'm in in my life, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and look at you, you're fucking doing it. You know, this is your job. Like, Well, what you run into is uh, there's, I don't know, they say seven years to find your voice, whatever. You know, I never knew what that meant until I guess I guess I have or I'm approaching it or it takes 10 years to get really good. But if you go out as, you know, start at 48, 46, and then four years in where you're, you're starting to get some work and develop an act, and I had people that, like me as a writer, I guess like me as a person, but take me. And I'd, I'd do shows warming up, and then I'd, I'd get chuckles. Well, I, I had this presence, and I say this everywhere I go, I had this presence of someone that had been doing it a lot longer than what they did, just because right. I looked older. I wasn't unnerved necessarily. But I only had my, an act that was had a three-year polish to it. You know, mm-hmm. it was what you were talking about, how the next night you were so much better than the 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 night before right. and then you're you know you're a year later is what a difference well any booker that saw me in a room like that I was never booked again because they just figured well that's he's done that's as funny as he's ever going to be I got right, that a right. lot Cause, oh because they assumed you'd been at it twenty years and this is they had assumed was, I was yeah. just out there having fun and that was my peak and I hadn't reached it and I wasn't going to polish up anymore oh that's interesting so the rooms I got later were um, you know, there's rooms like Crackers where they said, you know, they featured a couple times, they moved me up to headlining. Then there's a couple others where I featured, and they're like, well, that's, we're just going to go with some younger comics that are, you know, more promising. That, that have a future, you know, because yeah. they figured that's, they don't invest I had in you. peaked. All right. But you hadn't. You still haven't. No, no. You know, yeah. Still writing. But there are some comics you see out there that they have peaked, you know, they. Yeah. That's as funny as they're ever going to be, and it's, it's so I don't blame a booker for having that hunch. But I like to go back and do guest sets and kind of show them up, dust the place for seven minutes. And, yeah, but it's I've got so many places to work right now. I've, I've been I've been so fortunate that you know I I used to be like, well, I want to headline the Looney Band. Well, I don't care if I do or not. It'd right. be nice, but I don't. Where's the Looney Band? Oh, there's t- oh, uh, Tulsa. Oklahoma City, okay. Wichita. I think there's three of them. Midwest, yeah. Yeah. Audience right in my wheelhouse, too. But you What know, is, your, what is your wheelhouse? Who Who is your audience, do you think? 35 to 60, 70, something like that. The, the parent whose kids are approaching, leaving, that's had teenagers. And okay. It's not, the, it's not the I'm dating now. Right. Amy Schumer fraternity thing although you know I, those guys on the ships there's a lot of the, those guys that age on the ships and they laugh at me so you know i don't care whether you're laughing at me or with me it's just they find it funny they laugh they laugh at your jokes you mean they, yeah, or are they laughing they, at you as a person they're just laughing at just think of, that's they see that as they've pissed their dad off at one time <laughs> you know and that's the frustration they see and that's they still think that's funny until they become a dad and then right yeah what goes around comes around. Oh yeah, big time. I know. My daughter is like, she's amazing. 
at being me, <laughs> but an upgrade. She's a total upgrade. But I mean, she's uh, 2.0. Oh, she just kicks it right back at me. Just, and I'm like, and she's so funny. I'm kind of training her to be funny. I even put her on stage a few times and, and, and she says she doesn't like it, but she's the first time she did it. I actually had to hold her and like, she was crawling at <laughs> this video of her, like crawling <laughs> to pick her up off the floor and then hold her and prompt her, and she wouldn't look at the audience. But by her third show, she was grabbing the mic out of my hand and telling the jokes, you know? And oh, that yeah. New Year's show, when I had uh, Janet and everybody, I brought my daughter up on stage during one of the breaks, and uh, she told jokes. And How old is she? Uh, she was seven at the time. No, oh, she'll, okay. she'll be nine. So she was just shy of eight, yeah. Over the whole stage fright thing, then? Uh, well, I mean, I was there with her, but, um, yeah, she was over it. I mean, I, we had done... We, right before, like a couple weeks before that, um, we did a bit together where we sang a song together that I wrote, and and then I did this bit that, that I'll do tonight, but it's about her. It's you know, and uh, I should have, in hindsight, had her memorize her part, and we could have actually had the conversation instead of me saying her part for her. Yeah. But so she was on stage for ten minutes. And oh, that, ten minutes. Yeah. Not you know, she wasn't she wasn't performing for ten minutes, but she was there for ten minutes. And, and, you know, being feisty with me and, you know, and that kind of got her past like the fear of being on stage. And I couldn't hold her cause I was holding a guitar. Yeah. She had her own mic and, you know, and I was like, is that good? She's like, no, it's wrong. It's all wrong. It's, you know, and then she moved the mic. I'm not kidding. Two inches. And she's like, there, that's perfect. You know? <laughs> and of course that leveled the room, like everything a kid does, yeah, you yeah. can't compete with it. Uh, but by the next time she was fine. Like she was not afraid and, and, uh. And she's she's really funny, you know, and 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 such a smart ass, and, and I love it. I encourage as long as she's not disrespectful, I encourage her to be a little bit of a you know, crack a little wise, and, well, and yeah, teaching she, her that difference, you know. At, at her her age, she can get away with it. That's that's one step up from the uh, ventriloquist yeah. dummy, you know. Yeah. There, there's a lot of uh, leeway that people will give you. Uh, yeah, that's one thing. Get over the. The nervousness, because I was at a uh, minor league baseball game, well, last night it was. No, the night before. But they they had the, uh, they pulled my name out to, to uh, go on the field with this another person. We'd hit wiffle balls and try to get them in a hoop. Then th- th- you'd wait there till the, the inning was over, and the guy who's with me goes, are, are you nervous? And I go, nah, not really. I mean, first of all, we're, we're playing wiffle ball golf. I mean, it's just not going <laughs> to. Yeah. It's not like I have to run into a burning building. There's not that much pressure, and he he was just shaking out there, like, and you know what? He won. He beat me. So <laughs> maybe I should have been a little more attentive to what I was doing. Maybe <laughs> you were too relaxed. Well, I had a couple beers in me too, so I had I had some liquid relaxation. Do you drink when you perform? Uh, well, on a ship, on the, if it's the last show of the night, I'll have the the first beer of the night. I'll be on stage and okay, go through that, but. Uh, rarely. And if I did, it was probably, it was a mistake. I mean, I've never been, uh, never been rip roaring, embarrassing, never come back here again, drunk, but there's, uh, been a couple times people send up shots. Right. Nobody did. You got to drink them. I, I had them. And so I'd, I'd end a little bit slower than I normally do. <laughs> and, uh, but those are at places like Looney bins and clubs that are, you know, out of the Midwest and, 
Yeah, uh, last time I was with Julie at the Comedy Zone, I did a couple feature nights for her. It was great. I mean, it was great because I learned so much, you know. Like you said, like going out with her, it's not my demographic either. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I would bet that your demographic is closer to my demographic than hers is, you know. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but anyway, uh, by the end of, you know, one of the sets, and I, I don't know if it was the first or the second show on Saturday night, but people were just, they were throwing her shot after shot after. She probably took four shots in the last 20 minutes of her act, you know, and, and I think she was, even she was like, eh, this is enough, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but, but she's, she's great. Um, so, well, look, I know that we have to wrap it up cause we got to get our game face on and yeah, yeah. On stage this has soon. been fun. Uh, it's really time great. flew by. I know, man. It's a treat for me. Thank you so much for coming early and, and meeting with me and, and doing this. I just, uh, see now this is my worst part of any conversation. I can talk and talk and talk, but a telephone call. I the dismount is the most awkward thing. Because are are you a uh, last word person? I no, mean, I don't have to have the last word. No. In fact, on this podcast, I probably won't. Right, like we, Julie's a last word person. To where if you say goodbye before you hang up, you hear like bye. You know, <laughs> she has to have. She has to have the last word. But I I kind of am that way too. But I I'd, I'd rather be like. All right, goodbye. And then I feel like, okay, good. And then you hear like, bye. And then right in the middle of their bye, you've hit the button. It's just like, well, that fucker hung <laughs> up on me. You know, I, I'm so insecure about that. You know, uh, so the, just the dismount wrecks. So you got to take me through this dismount. Say thank you, and I'll go. You're welcome. And then we'll end it. Then, then see, I'm getting flustered here. This is I hate. We'll this. probably end it where you just said we'll end it. Okay. Who knows? I mean, it's, we so th- we, it could we be think, over now. Yeah, it's already it already it could have ended five minutes ago. Okay. We ahead. you don't have to stress. Um, we uh, we usually wait. We find a moment that the guest says something, you know, profound or very often cutting of me or something something that's funny or profound or meaningful, and we we tend to go out on that moment. Well, and we've gone two hours and we had none of nothing. that. Nothing. I know we haven't. That, that's why we're still going. I'm waiting for you to say something that I. Nothing. Yeah. Well, get, your you patience gotta, has been exhausted. And that's going to wrap it up for my conversation with Sid Davis. He's so freaking easy to talk to. He's smart. He's interesting, and he's only a little bit afraid of the dark. Speaking of dark. The book I was referring to about the heroin epidemic in America is called Dreamland, Not Wonderland. The author, Sam Canones, is phenomenal, and you can hear him interviewed on WTF with Mark Marin. There's also a link to his book on our website. If you like what you heard, please visit ltfpod.com. You can support the podcast using our Amazon portal or by making a donation on our donation page. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes and make sure you tell your friends about Learning to Fail and share the podcast through all of your social media outlets. That way, we can keep failing ad infinitum. I really wanted to sit down and talk to you because this whole sort of, really the midlife comic connection for me with you is very specific. Uh, I just really admire the fact that you have succeeded at what I want to do. Yeah, Very yeah. directly, you know. I mean, every comedian who's successful is succeeding at what I want to do, but not in the way that, you know, I feel a real kinship to your story. Oh, well, that's cool. <laughs> and the buffet line. You go, I hate being behind a buffet line by one of these OCD people who has to inspect every piece of food.
before they put it on their plate. And I'm behind this lady with the tongs and the baked potatoes, like, well, this one, and this one, this one, this one. I'm thinking, lady, you're picking a potato, not a husband. And then I got to look at her husband, like, well, take your time. Important decision, right?